All right, welcome along to the RTE Soccer Podcast. I'm Raf Giallo, joined this week by Connor Neville. We've got an interview this week with Diane Caldwell, who has made a dream move to Manchester United, the club she has supported her entire life. Um, she talks about going to Old Trafford as a child, and of course the women's team don't play there, but Old Trafford was where the promo shots were done after she signed, and she is clearly having the time of her life. So um, we discussed that, and of course Ireland's qualification campaign. But before we get to that, Connor, you were a busy man this week. Uh, you were over at the Ireland launch how did you get no, on i was there? once i managed to find the place yeah yeah you, you really haven't lived until you've traipsed around an underground car park in uh well it wasn't actually underground but it traipsed around a car park a dank car park in clare hall shopping center which is near darndale i had to ask a very kind tesco delivery man to direct me to where the glass doors were but i eventually found the place and uh yeah uh three hours milling around a room with a lot of League of Ireland players, League of Ireland managers, uh, Women's National League players and managers, and uh, Mark Scanlon, the director of the league, who, uh, whose comments have already been circulated. A lot of the rest of them are subject to guild rules, so you'll understand, Raf, I have to kind of be cagey about what I let out here. I don't want the, my fellow hacks to be uh, after me, as they were after Damien Duff yesterday, who, by the way, managed to um, skirt the media uh, section in there at all much to the outrage of, he, uh, yeah he did speak to tony o'donoghue of course our, it's only due time. to tony's incredible charm and powers of persuasion <laughs> that we have any duffer quotes at all yes um but yeah there was considerable annoyance that uh, the setup up there we were on the roof and there was a there was a glass building where i believe loi tv and all the managers were doing and sports while were there taking photos and the media center was in a separate purple building sort of perpendicular and Duffer didn't deign to enter that at any point and there was there was considerable annoyance at this but you know there was some interesting stuff there um I personally enjoyed Ollie Horgan talking about traipsing around the far-flung parts of Europe searching for players that Finn Harps can afford so uh that, that was interesting quotes in due course obviously and some are definitely going to appear. Um, I know you've been chatting to Tim Clancy um but of course uh you can't really give too much away about that I presume yeah, Tim. Tim is looking forward to the to the new season. I'm not sure. I, he, uh, yeah, he talked about James the Banquet bound for Udinese, and he talked about Owen Doyle as well, who's returning from Bolton Wanderers, and how big a coup that that would be. I mean, Pat's obviously they lost Maddie Smith to Derry. Everyone's losing everyone to Derry these days, but they have sought re, re, reinforcements. They lost Yaros, their very highly rated Liverpool loanee keeper. He's gone to Notts County for the year, but they have. They've secured uh, Joseph Anang from West Ham. So the they, they, uh, the league runners-up in the Cup Champions should be in reasonable health for 2022. Yeah, and given you are restricted in what you can talk about, we might uh, discuss, uh, you mentioned Mark Scanlon being there, of course, but it also happened to be the week, of course, when the FAI strategic plan for 2022 yeah. to 2025 was released. Quite a lot of interesting things in there, but there were a couple of things that jumped out to me, especially as a someone from the regions or up in up in the northwest not very far from where you're from either but it was in regard to the third, uh, the third tier of the LOI that mm. they are um, discussing of course the WNL the plan is also to have a second tier there um Sligo Rovers of course being the uh, the 10th club now to join for this season but in the League of Ireland yeah. There has been a third tier before between 08 and 11 and 2011 of course there was the A championship which uh, didn't last long, but it was their kind of reserve teams and um, a few other kind of regional regional sides as well. But 
I would imagine with a third tier, there has to be scope to fill in some of the blanks um, on the map. Yeah, he discussed that. I mean, he said it's obviously it's still up in the air in terms of the shape of the third tier and, you know, who will be the clubs involved. But he did. He talked about the possibility. Obviously, people were talking about reserve teams and B teams of existing League of Ireland teams. He said they could be part of the uh, third tier, a partner club with a current club. So um, that that was floated. And he talked as well and significantly about, about new geographical areas where Clubs are already in underage leagues working towards senior football, but the first division is possibly too big a gap at this point. So I presume what he's talking about is, is the likes of maybe Cavan, Monaghan or places like that, or even looking at maybe Kilkenny City are gone from the league, but that whole sort of southeast area above Wexford and Waterford, Kilkenny, Leash, that whole area, maybe even Kerry. I mean, the... the bizarre geographical composition of the premier division did come up um, yeah because of- it's basically the northwest um up from kind of Derry all the way down to Sligo and then basically you've got the the Dublin clubs really and then of course draw down yeah. the rock I mean I, we've seen we've seen these sort of garish maps highlighted on social media whereby like Longford I believe are the most northerly uh, club in the first division and it, it looks almost like if you divide, if you do draw a diagonal line, line down the country from the northwest encompassing Dublin, everyone is north of that line. And then everyone south of that line is in the first division. And it was floated that given that Munster, the Munster clubs are struggling so much, both Cork and Waterford down in the second tier, uh, Galway is still not getting out. Now, they may emerge this year and they are the three professional clubs, fully professional clubs down there. Um it was suggested that focusing on a third tier might be a distraction given that we have areas we need to attend to within the structure of the league itself in terms of the geographical shape of the existing Premier Division and First Division. But they're ploughing ahead. Um, yeah, we'll see what shape it looks like. But um, they, he, he, was, he was still pretty vague about the shape of the league in terms of how many teams it'll have, 10 or 12. He didn't really specify. And he left open what sort of entities we'll see in the league, whether it'll be reserve teams or whether there'll be new geographical uh, areas explored. Yeah, but 2023, which is actually not that yeah. long away, given it's next year is the date that's been given for that. But um, also um, domestically, of course, and what was discussed in the strategic plan was the ambition to move from number 40 in the um, association coefficient rankings yeah. to number 30. And that seemed quite ambitious. Now, the, that was to do that within the short space of a few years. But the Moldovan League, for example, has gone up 12 places between 2021 and 2022. So there is precedent for it. But again, okay. you'll, need, you'll need a club that is getting into the Champions League group stages. And for the moment, that has never happened. Yeah, I mean, he acknowledged, I mean, that target was sort of widely derided as very fantastical and overly ambitious. He did, uh, he acknowledged it was, ex- it was pretty ambitious. Um, and stress that some of the areas are out of our control. Um, you know, you would, but they are the ambition, as he said, is for teams to be regularly competing in the uh, group stages of European competition and to be seeded throughout the early rounds. Um, we've had teams get into the Europa League before. We obviously had um, Dundalk in 2016 and 2020, albeit 2020, they got there via a slightly tamer draw 2016 was probably a better achievement in terms of beating Borisov we had Shamrock Rovers in 2011 breaking the mold in that respect 
It hasn't happened regularly. Last year was particularly disappointing, particularly Shamrock Rovers' exit. Um, one would have thought they could have gone further. Um, we'll see how it goes this year. He did talk about um, not having the League Cup being an advantage to the to our push for European places. And, you know, the League Cup isn't coming back this year. Um, they were talking about the World Cup consideration at the end of the year and the league finished late for COVID last year. They haven't brought back the League Cup this year, but they are open to reassessing that. He 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 pointed that as a as something that could allow the the European qualified teams to give them more space to to compete well in Europe. Um, but yeah, and uh, you did write a piece about the uh, twenty thirty World Cup bid, which of course would involve the five associations, including the FAI. That is, of course, not happening, and focus has turned to Euro 2028. It seems that that is probably it, it's the most realistic. It looks, it looks likely to. I mean, it, it, in so far as it was discussed yesterday, a lot of the discussion was about um, concern that it would detract from more immediate matters in terms that need attention in Irish football. Some, some agreed with that position. Some didn't. I mean, Derry City's Rory Higgins was very. Um, open to the idea of Euro 2028. He thought it was overdue and he didn't think it would um, detract from, you know, what's what's needed here. Um, yeah, it looks like it looks like Euro 2028 is is a uh, is a sure thing. I mean, that has probably less to do with Ireland than it has to do with England, and they'll be carrying the bulk of the bid. I mean, you know, UEFA in the wake of the pandemic need money, of course, and this is a guaranteed money spinner taking it to England. Um, yeah, I, I would expect um, I would expect a bid to bid to win. Although we've had rude shots before, I mean, I, I do. There was a lot of blithe confidence. Hard to believe now about Euro two thousand and eight, and how the Celtic Soul Brothers bid between Scotland and Ireland. How could that possibly be be beaten? Um, even though <laughs> we didn't technically have a stadium aside from Lansdowne Road, which was in quite a shabby um, a, sh- a shabby state at that point. We had we uh, in Famously, in 2002, September 2002, the um, UEFA officials were taken on a tour of Crow Park, which didn't allow soccer at the time, and uh, a field in Abbottstown, which, you know, was to allow soccer, but was a field and has, you know, but uh, yeah, we got a rude shot that time. I, I believe the um, Emmett Malone told me once that when the Austria and Switzerland um bid went in, they were engaged in some negative campaigning about the Scotland-Ireland bid, pointing out that the Scotland-Ireland bid consisted of one one city, Glasgow, which had three stadiums, which was to be discouraged, and another city which had no stadiums, which which was Dublin, needless to say. Uh, We also had the Rugby World Cup bid, which, again, more blithe confidence, which we got a rude awakening for when we learned that several of our GA stadiums the, uh, the Wi-Fi was a bit spotty, a bit too spotty for the uh, World Rugby's liking. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? But, I mean, it, it would appear that uh, the stars are aligning for this bid. You know, there's a lot of political jockeying. And the mere fact that they abandoned the World Cup uh, 2030 bid in pursuit of this suggests there were some, um, you know, pointers or, you know, hints that emerged in, in, the, in the sort of internal politicking sphere which which suggested this this should win yeah and also given the nature of uh the number of stadiums that will be needed as you said england will provide the bulk of it there's not that much mm. pressure 
on uh, from an Irish FAI point of view in terms of providing stadiums. There's the two in Dublin, and that probably would be enough. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I presume Croke Park is going to be included as part of the... Yeah, with with that assumption, yes. Yeah, and obviously Hill 16 presumably will have to be filled in, but that's been done before when the Irish football team played there between 07 and 10. So, yeah, I mean, they'll have two stadiums to kick in. An interesting um, dimension to it is is Northern Ireland's positioning in the bid because they don't have a stadium that meets the... Stated minimum criteria. I don't know whether Windsor Park is going to be upgraded. Casement Park, yeah, is the one being discussed. Possibly is the the one that will actually be be used if it happens. But again, we're a few years away from that. But um, mm. there's other things to discuss, of course. Anthony Barry, um, Roy Keane, which is now a non-story. Um, but uh, before that, we'll bring you the interview. He's with still, Roy Keane though, he's never a non-story, rap. Of course, of course. Um, he does get mentioned in our interview with Diane Caldwell. First thing I asked her was how long the Manchester United move was in the works. Thanks, Raf. Yeah, um, I've been in contact with United since November. Um, and then obviously they needed defensive reinforcements. So, um, yeah, then it was all um, done, obviously, a little bit late in the end. Um, but, yeah, done before deadline day. And that was the most important thing. Yeah, and you've had an opportunity to be part of a couple of match day squads now in the FA Cup. Like, how has that been? Obviously, going in with the uh, the Manchester United uh, kit uh, and everything else, and kind of just being there before you get the opportunity to actually uh, um, get some game time. Uh, hopefully, very soon. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's it's all happening very quickly because there's so many games. You know, there's three games in my first week here, so it's all a little bit surreal still and. I've, I've had very little training, to be fair. A lot of trainings have been just match day minus one or match day minus two sessions. Um, so really thrown into it straight away. But it's, it's a great experience. And like you said, to be involved in the match day squad straight away, it's, it's, it's really good. And just to be thrown into it straight away, it's, it's a good experience. Yeah. And as you mentioned uh, in the in the press releases and everything uh, at the time the move was announced, this is a dream move for you. I mean, you grew up as a Manchester United fan. So how special has this last couple of weeks been? given as, as we can see like you have the you know you have the, the kind of training kit and stuff on you've got the badge there and I imagine if you're thinking back to the childhood version of yourself it's kind of unimaginable it is kind of unimaginable you know it really is hard to put into words because like you said as a child it was just always my dream and you know you, you get to certain points in your career where you think maybe it won't happen and you know when the women's team wasn't even in existence um, until the last couple of years. And it was something maybe that I thought, okay, it might never happen. But even if they had a team in a in an unprofessional league, amateur level, I still think I would have tried to come over here at some point and just to represent that badge and, and play. So the fact that they then did create a professional team, you know, it was just obviously an ambition of mine to try to get over here and um, I had always tried to, to push a move and been in contact with with the previous coaches and management. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not easy and a lot of a lot of variables have to fall into place. Um, so I was lucky that um, everything happened this time around. Yeah, the stars aligned. I mean, when you go back to your childhood, would you have kind of gone over to Old Trafford or anything like that when you were younger? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my first experience was when I was eight years old and we were traveling as a family through England and my dad took the family to Old Trafford and we did a tour of the, the stadium and got pictures. So I was around eight then. And then I had my first game when I was 11, um, experienced that. And it was just, 
I mean, a really memorable experience. Like I, I remember vividly, we were behind the goal in the East Stand and we were probably like one of the last to leave, you know, and like all the stewards were like trying to get us to leave. And my dad was going up ahead of me down the steps. And I remember vividly just turning back to take one last look and, you know, thinking to myself as an 11 year old, like you'll play there one day. And I probably didn't really realize how at that time, but um, that was always in my mind. And um, again, like an ambition that I had to, to play on that field. Yeah, and in terms of people you would have looked up to, obviously, as you said, the women's team didn't really exist at the time when you were growing up. What was it? Mm. The usual kind of suspects in terms of the, the Irish lads like Roy Keane, Dennis, or Dennis Irwin, etc. Yeah, of course, you know, Manchester United has a, a rich legacy of Irish legends that have represented this club. So, um, of course, Roy Keane was my here and uh, I absolutely idolised him growing up and had his posters definitely on my wall. Good stuff. Um, of course, other than the excitement of it being kind of important to you because of the fact you've supported the club your entire life, you're joining a club that is challenging for things and is up in the upper echelons of the uh, the Women's Super League. Um, that must be a bit of a driver as well, that there could potentially be trophies um, either at, towards the end of this season or maybe beyond that. Yeah, of course. And I mean, that's that's attractive for every player. Now. You know, every player wants to be playing at the highest level and and playing for the biggest trophies and competitions. So, of course, that's a, a major, major plus point. And hopefully, you know, we can continue on the good run of form that we're currently on and and uh, hopefully achieve something at the end of the season. Yeah, and in regards to your role um, at centre-back, uh, in conversations with Mark Skinner so far, has he kind of given you an indication like how you're going to be used and uh, I suppose style of play and everything else? Yeah, I mean, we still have to kind of go through like little bits and details of, of style of play. Obviously, like I said, I've been thrown into it and it's it's been fast and furious, a lot of games. So um, I need a bit more experience and uh, time to gel into the team and, and a little bit more trainings under my belt. Um, but I'm here to help the team in any way that I can and obviously reinforce the defence and uh, work hard every day in training and, and try to prove to Mark um, what I can offer and, and bring to this team. Yeah, and you're obviously arriving from a season with North Carolina where, of course, you were over there with Denise O'Sullivan, who I think, if I recall, the last press conference I was on that you were also on, um, she had promised to uh, be sort of a mammy figure to you as you were sort of arriving. Um, did that kind of come to pass? Yeah, she did. She looked after me a lot and it was great having an Irish teammate that I you know, had to play with. Um, I never had that before in my career, so that was really special and just helped even you know with all the traveling that we had to do you know you do it together and it makes it that little bit um more easier and more enjoyable but it was it was great to have Denise as a teammate at club level as as well as country yeah and that season in the uh, NWSL how did you find it I mean you played seven league games in the end across that across that season but just in terms of how you found the adaptation because of course I know you were over in America before um in the mm. college game but obviously it's a different uh, it's a different thing than uh moving into the professional uh, division yeah I mean the, the league is ferocious um it, it's such a high paced game it's so physical and um, it's very transitional. So it was a lot to get used to, um, very different to the European game and different style of play. But, um, you know, it was it was definitely an experience and one that I learned a lot from. Um, obviously, there, it was it was turbulent. Let's be honest. There was a lot of off the field issues across the whole league, um, which, again, it, you just take it as a learning experience and uh, something that I'm really grateful for experiencing. Yeah. And uh, in regards to 
adaptation as i said um you had been to the us of course as a as a college player and you, you were kind of moving there a little bit older so you kind of knew the country a bit but you've been sort of around europe as well from iceland to germany mm-hmm. to norway um as you get older do you find that you know that change of environment uh, that constant change of environment is it easier to adapt to as you get older or is, is or is it still a case that maybe regardless of what age you are it can still be a little bit difficult you know that first week or two in a new country or mm-hmm. at a new club yeah I think it definitely gets easier the more experience you have of doing it um you know you're always putting yourself out of your comfort zone and and obviously pushing and challenging yourself and changing your environment um, the biggest thing I find that helps is just having a good team around you and good teammates. And I must say that transition into this club in particular has, has been so easy and so smooth for myself because of the staff, because of the players. They've been so welcoming and, and very warm to me. So that also makes the, the transitions easier as well as your experience of doing it in, in the past. Yeah. And geographically, is it a little bit easier also for family to get over because you've been much further away of course over in Germany and then obviously the US during a yeah, pandemic yeah. Uh, during a pandemic as well probably makes it even more difficult but the fact that Manchester is only a, an hour's flight or probably even less um it, it must be easier to get you know your folks over definitely you know my, my sisters are great they always try to travel and, and follow me around no matter where I am in the world but definitely my parents were like can you not just play a little bit closer <laughs> to home so we can come and support you a bit more so uh I'm not going to be any more excuses for them now. So they're going to have to get over to Manchester. And I think they're all really excited to, to get over. And obviously now the, the travel bans have all been lifted. So, yeah, hopefully it'll be a nice um, season ahead for them. Yeah, and of course, they would have been able to see you multiple times playing for Ireland, especially here in uh, Tala in particular. And last year was sort of a year where it kind of built slowly and ended on a really high note, obviously with the 11-0 win over Georgia. But the I suppose the first half of the year with those kind of friendly matches, and they were chosen deliberately, obviously, to give you a good test in, ahead of the World Cup qualifiers. Um, I was chatting to Courtney Brosnan, your teammate, uh, kind of about that dynamic where... Mm-hmm you're choosing difficult opponents to play. Uh, obviously, that can have a knock-on effect on results, but at the same time, you're trying to balance confidence with um, with good preparation. Like, was it difficult um, in terms, or was it something where you were able to kind of cast the results aside because you're looking at that kind of long, long-term goal? Yeah, obviously, you know, we were looking at the bigger picture and, and wanting to test ourselves against those really strong nations in which we will have to face, you know, let's be honest, if we're looking to qualify, um, we're going to have to beat those high seeded teams. Um, so again, it was, yeah, more of kind of a learning process for us. Um, I know a lot of people could argue, well, we need to become better of beating the lower seeded teams and, and being able to really dominate the lower seeded teams because we obviously struggled to get goals against them. Um, and as you could see, you know, the Slovakia result was, was testament to that. But then again, Georgia was a good step forward because we actually really punished the team and, and scored a lot of goals, which is not typically our style. So that was a good step forward. And again, it was all learning against those top teams as well. Yeah. And of course, there would be lessons from the, the European Championship qualifying campaigns, which obviously started well and unfortunately just pipped by Ukraine. Um, what lessons are you taking from that one in particular now that you're at the halfway point of the World Cup one that you feel you can do differently this time to get over the line? Mm, well, I mean, I hope we can take lessons from from that campaign. And if there are any lessons to be taken, it will be our game management and how to deal in those pressure situations. 
um, again, where we're perhaps having to be the dominant team and, and possess and break down the opposition and um, turn possession into goals. So it's, it's going to be our game management that we're going to have to really learn and take from the, the last campaign and, yeah, hopefully improve on that. And, um, you know, really our, our progress is going to be measured on if we, if we can qualify. Yeah, and for yourself um, in that defence as well, of course, the competition for places is just getting more fierce and fierce now. And there's Savannah McCarthy uh, in there now, of course, uh, Nee Fahey, of course, Louise Quinn uh, remains there. Of course, you're, you're still playing in the, in the team as well. How challenging has that been and, what, and how beneficial has it been for you personally in terms of having that extra drive there and everyone kind of challenging for those either two or three places at centre-back? Yeah, I think we've always been really strong defensively going back the last number of years. Um, we traditionally have very good defensive players, but I think the key now is to really focus on, on the, our attack and, like I said, convert possession and, and convert chances into goals because that's been nearly kind of our problem predominantly. Um, and again, competition for places is, is what you need in a squad and it keeps everyone on, on their toes. But I think the big thing for for the Irish team is that everyone is playing at a professional level now and it's it's brought the level of the team so much forward because of individuals going abroad and, and playing professionally. Yeah, and we'll see how that goes. Obviously, April, um, Sweden, uh, when you travel over there to, to resume the campaign. But of course, before that, yeah, you've got plenty of time at Manchester United before that. So <laughs> congratulations again on the move and uh, we look forward to kind of seeing you playing in, a, in the WSL over the next few weeks. Cheers, Raf. Thanks very much. All right, so that was Diane Caldwell, Ireland defender, who is now living the dream at Manchester United. But before we go, um, Connor, there's other things to discuss. Anthony Barry, of course, leaving the Ireland set up a blow for Stephen Kenny. Yeah, a big blow. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about how many uh, the, the amount of um, inflow and outflow from his uh, coaching setup over the past two years or so. Um, he did come up briefly in the this lengthy League of Ireland launch in quotes, which can be let out, although they're quite modest. Rory Higgins, who worked with Kenny before, knows Barry quite well, played with him at Coventry, studied for his A licence together in, Bel in Belfast. He, uh, he described him as an outstanding young coach. But, you know, he was relatively philosophical. He pointed out that these things happen in football and Kenny has proven very adept at sourcing coaches before uh, recruitment in that sphere. And he said he's confident he'll find someone who can do the job. Now, Barry was heavily lauded for his um, role in Ireland's sort of general improvement across 2021. I know Thomas Tuchel kept him on staff at Chelsea and has called him the greatest yeah. um, set-piece coach he's ever seen. Yeah, there's a good piece in the Atlantic about him in terms of his work in the defensive yeah. and attacking um, sense of uh, the set-pieces. And even at Wigan previously, he was very highly rated. Um, and obviously the fact that Belgium, Belgium are taking him on, that's yeah. another kind of sign of just how well he is rated. Well, I, I, and as I think it's been pointed out, I mean, it, in that context, it's remarkable how Ireland, who were at a low ebb when he would have been uh, brought in, managed to secure him. I mean, you know, that, that was quite a coup. Um, I know people talk about when the team is organising when organising the team's shape, he was a very vocal figure in that respect. And we've seen Ireland uh, gravitate towards the 3-5-2 shape in recent um, months. Um, yeah, he's a big loss. Um, 
but I'm sure they'll secure someone else. And hopefully the knowledge he has left behind will survive in some form, in some form. you know, the, the inherited knowledge won't be lost from his um, short tenure with Ireland. Yeah, and we will be seeing him very soon, given that Belgium is the first game back in the Aviva and yeah. finally. So, um, and Kenny and the staff is that. You worry, you worry the Belgians might have more info on us than, I mean, I don't know, did they need insider info to? Uh, they, didn't, they didn't need a Euro 2016. I doubt, I doubt they're still in the world. It increases their chances even more. Yeah, but um, before we go, Roy Keane, of course, the Sunderland not happening, um, has, as has been confirmed. So the, the intriguing thing about it, it whether it was going to happen or not, was I still don't have a sense of how he would set up a team or what a Roy Keane philosophy would look like. Well, the Roy Keane philosophy, it's slightly... You, you won't get snippets of it from from his Sky Sports uh, punditry over the years, the viral snippets that have come out. It mainly his first port of call when any team is misfiring is to assume that they're they're not running around enough or they're they have they're generally of low moral character. So I d I don't know what I don't know what his his tactical uh sense of the game is. Yeah, you you wouldn't be apparent from his punditry. Um I was I suppose his it, it's hard to see where he gets in now because I, his punditry is quite retro and I'm not sure it would appeal to many of the more forward-thinking um, clubs around the place. It seemed to me Sunderland were, were inclined to go for him on the basis of his record there, which was quite good at the time. Yeah, I mean, and that, that forgotten. is forgotten. forgotten that he yeah. did. I know he had a reasonable um, financial backing at the time. But they did, uh, they had a terrible start to that season in the championship, 2006, 2007. Now, I know there was upheaval in the background, but he did pull it together well. And they roared to that title, really, finished it very well. I think they won 5 mil in the last game to secure. Yeah, it was, it was a sensational season. And then the second season is even harder because, of course, it's about survival. And they managed to do that. They managed to do that. Yeah, there was a sense, there was a sense at the time that they should have been doing better, not least from Keane himself. And from sort of the, the general consensus was they were they were underperforming. Um, I wonder, in retrospect, was that was that overly ambitious? Because they haven't they haven't really they, they failed to flower into something much better after King departed. Um, no, I know they remained in the Premier League for many years afterwards, but never never scaled any heights. I mean, King. Keane wasn't, they weren't, they certainly weren't bound for relegation automatically if Keane had remained there. I mean, in, in I think towards the very end of his tenure, they still managed a 2-1 derby win over Newcastle, I seem to recall. So it, it, it wasn't imploding at the time. I mean, he left quite abruptly. His period at Ipswich seems to have damaged him, particularly the stories which emanated around his relationships with players and some of the barbed um, comments he made he seems to be unable to resist a withering comment which is fantastic obviously in a tv uh, tv environment possibly not not something a um, sports psychologist would advise you know um and i think agban lahore um, gabriel agban lahore came out with some fairly yeah he was on talk harsh. sport and yeah was given out I think he called his man management zero out of a hundred. That's quite a harsh rating. I don't know if I don't know if I did. I mean, that's that's fairly definitive now. Gabby would want to look at his 
rating system there. Yeah, I think Villa went down not long after that anyway, after Roy Keane had departed as well. So I don't know what that is. Well, maybe it was the legacy of Keane's tenure there. The inherited knowledge of what it just (laughs) takes to get relegated. Well, we won't know the answer to that really, but um, I don't know, where does it kind of leave him as well? Because of course, it's encouraging that Sunderland have kind of looked at him. Obviously, there's past history there, but maybe there are other clubs that are floating around. Maybe kind of, it is known that he does want to get back into management. That's been known for a long time. So maybe there is something out there, maybe League One or Championship. Well, it's not clear whether he rejected Sunderland or Sunderland got cold feet at the prospect of him coming back. I mean, we, we don't quite know that yet. I would, I'd suggest, I mean, in the short term, I would imagine the Sky executives are toasting uh, this latest twist in the story, given, given Keane's work to them in terms of viral uh, clippage. Um, you know, he seems to trend daily anyway. I mean, there's a, there's a lull on Twitter and Roy Keane is trending. I mean, he's, he's, you barely even check at this point why he's trending. He just... It's the default um, situation of Irish Twitter that Roy Keane is trending. Yeah, well, anyway, I don't, uh, I don't think we'll be trending after this anyway. But uh, anyway, why? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm very modest about these kind of things. Um, no, it's no, no. Uh, well, of, of you will be actually because um, I'm massively thing, overexposed. One, I was one, on the GA podcast gonna, earlier. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention. We have the GA podcast and the rugby podcast as well for people if they want to check out some podcasts all over the shop. Yes, and a very much lauded for uh, fraud as well, obviously, as a lifesaver today. So anyway, um, we'll be back next week with a full League of Ireland preview as the season closes in. And uh, also, I'll be speaking to Zach Albuzetti very soon. But Connor, thanks for joining us and we'll be back very soon.